Right then, it's after 10 o'clock, it's time for the movie hour. Say hello, Daniel. Hi there, good morning. Hi, um, Daniel's joined us from now on, regularly. Yeah, well, if, if, if nothing goes horribly wrong in the next 60 minutes. Yeah, we'll say how we go, if not, he's fired. Um, <laughs> so, just to introduce, because he does a show, when's your show, he's through the week? I do Mix and Match with Mumby, which is on uh, Thursday afternoons between 1 and 3. Yeah, so people might not be familiar with it on Saturday morning, which I've done for the past few months and stuff, so I thought I'd devise a little quiz, put him on the spot. Um, during the next record, he's got 3 minutes 29 seconds of plan B to come up with answers for the following questions, which is, the first film you saw or remember, like your first childhood memory right, film. okay. Best and worst film of all time. Mm, that's slightly easier, but okay. Um, also you can throw into that mix to your favourite director, and also your opinions on 3D. So we'll stick plan B on and get yourself thinking. Right. Alright then, you're back here on Lionheart Radio with me, Paul Young. And me, Daniel Mumby. Yes, um, before that I gave Daniel some questions. Uh, so, would you like to tell us, uh, what was your first film you saw or slash remember? Um, it's the first one I remember. Um, it's quite a tricky one, but I, I think my earliest memory of film was, um, being taken to see James and the Giant Peach, the Henry Selleck film, when I was about eight years old, and going to see it in a... I can't remember the exact place, but it was somewhere in Chester, and, uh, I remember kind of going in, seeing all the kind of the characters hanging down from the ceiling, loving the film, and then uh, eating kind of lukewarm fish and chips in a bus shelter afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, Fond um, way to start. Your favourite film of all time. Uh, that's, that's one. quite an easy one. It's the final cut version of Blade Runner. Um, uh, final cut because that's the one over, because Blade, if, I mean, I'm not going to bore you with the history of Blade Runner because I've talked about it enough on my show a couple of weeks ago, but basically that's the version of the film over which Ridley Scott had the most creative control. It's it's a fantastic film about what it is to be human, about dystopia, about pollution, and you know just just it just chimes with all the things that I'm interested in, and it's got Harrison Ford's best performance in. Ooh, controversial. Yeah, I mean, I like him in I know Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Fugitive and so forth, and there and he he famously wouldn't talk about Blade Runner for years and years because he and Ridley Scott didn't get on at all. But there's just something about that because he's playing completely against type that makes it so. He's also he's got a, he's got a bit of a, a funny relationship with the Star Wars franchise in that he yeah he doesn't want you kind of wants to distance and so I can can you see his point because it has cursed a lot of the people in it. Yeah, I mean, you look at Mark Hamill's career, for instance. I mean, well, that barely took off at all. He should embrace if he's willing. To get back and make Indiana Jones 4 with Shia LaBeouf, <laughs> then it's like you can't have that much pride, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because there was a, there was an interview with him recently for his new film, uh, Morning Glory, which is coming out in a couple of weeks' time, in which uh, uh, the interview, the journalist who was doing it was asked by his boss afterwards, what, what was it like? He said he was terrible, he only wanted to talk about carpentry. Because <laughs> that's what Harrison <laughs> Ford started out with before he did American Graffiti and so forth, he was a set builder. Yeah. Right then, uh, you're the worst film of all time. Titanic the Animated Musical. Which is a little scene, thankfully, a uh, low-budget Italian film which came out four years after the James Cameron version. It features Mexican mice and a rapping dog, and you will want to claw your own eyes out as you watch it. So it's, oh, it's, it's one of these ones where... It sounds so bad that you have to see it to prove yeah. it, but it, but it's right up there with Exorcist to the Heretic, Oversex Drug Suckers from Mars, it, you know, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, it's in that sort of bracket. Just pure terrible. <laughs> yeah, like I say... It, you will you will want to emulate Oedipus and actually tear out your eyes because after that nothing can seem as bad again. High <laughs> <I> praise indeed. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, the, your opinion on 3D. Now I should start off by saying that I haven't seen Avatar, um, either in the original version or the special edition, so, you know, take that as it may. Um, 
I'm very skeptical about 3D in general. I've seen a number of 3D films. I saw, uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which is great, uh, Christmas Carol, which is not so great. And my concern, I mean, I very much take the same line as somebody like Roger Ebert or Mark Kermit in that it's, it's basically a distraction from the main focus of a film, which is plot and characters and story. There have been instances in the past, like Andy Warhol's Fresh for, Fra Flesh for Frankenstein, if I can speak properly, which have used 3D in a kind of knowingly gimmicky way, so you actually have, you know, bats flying out at you. Yeah. But I think that it is just mainly a device to bring people back into the cinema to stop, you know, to piracy, and it isn't working. I mean, if you look at the way that yeah. uh, Despicable Me, the way that that took money in its, you know, original American release a couple of months before it came out here, less than half of the people who went to see Despicable Me saw it in 3D, so it's not even working as money spinner. Yeah, I think is um, the big, it'd be one of the big blockbusters of this summer was, um, Clash of the Titans. Yeah. And that was, uh, retrofitted, is that the right terminology? Yeah, there, there's, there's debate on whether it's retrofitted or dimensionalised. I mean, it doesn't make any difference, but basically what happens is you, you can either shoot a film in 3D, like Avatar was, or like, um, the I think they're shooting the new Tintin film in 3D, or no, it's in post-production at the moment, really. or you can do something called retrofitting, which is where you shoot a film in 2D or flat, whatever you want to call it, yeah. then you put it through a computer which kind of fiddles around with the image. It, you know, it's a complicated process and not particularly interesting, but basically it means that if you watch a retrofitted 3D film, everything looks kind of small and and just very odd, and there are only little bits of it in 3D. I mean, the thing that's really worrying me is that Star Wars is going to be re-released in 3D, the whole saga. Yes, he, and he will not stop until he's I mean, tarnished the grave of that film. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I thought Jar Jar Binks was bad enough in 2D, I mean, I'm certainly not going to go back and see him again. True. Uh, I think, yeah, it's, um, I think then that's, I think you're fitting well in this show, because that's a general consensus, yeah, that if, Thank good. if, uh, don't just, because I think there's the, there's the, the the, the rumour that they just send these films away to India to a small studio and then someone does it afterwards for very cheap money. It's like, if you can't be bothered to film it in 3D, if you're not committed to 3D, just don't do it in 3D. Stick to your original vision. Yeah. Films like Toy Story, uh, 3, uh, or Toy Story 3, didn't you give us full title, didn't add anything to it. I haven't seen Toy Story 3, so again, I can't comment, but I do agree in principle with you that, yeah. uh, I mean, you go to the cinema, if you go and watch a no normal, t uh, normal film, and then you see a thing for Resident Evil 3D, that of Afterlife 3D, I can't remember what the mm -hmm. full title was. That apparently was shot in cam by cam on cameras from space, if poor W. Sanders <laughs> is to be believed. But that trailer was just like, that was full of gimmick things, it's like, oh, here's Mila Jovovich, she's just gonna throw an axe at the screen so that you'll duck and stuff like that, it's like, it is just a gimmick, and I think we'll get to that with the number one in the UK top ten uh, shortly. Yeah, well, should we do the top ten now? Yeah, we'll do numbers ten or six. Yeah, we'll take a break have, for a record. I have waffled on a bit, I'm sorry. Uh, so we'll take a break for a record, and then we'll, we'll finish the rest top ten off. So, uh, number ten, Vampires Suck. I haven't seen this, but by all accounts, it's every bit as bad as the other, uh, installments of, you know, Jason Freeberg and Aaron Seltzer's so-called parodies. I'm just glad that it's dropping out of the top ten. The only reason it got to number three last week was because it was kind of riding the wave of, you know, the anti-Twilight crowd who can't stand anything with Kirsten Stewart and Robert Patterson. And I'm quite agnostic about the whole Twilight thing, having not read the books or seen the films, so... You see, um, I've, I've, I've read the books and seen the films. I haven't seen the third film, but I'd say... I can see it. I can see it's why it has a popularity. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. There's a reason why people are going, but the film that doesn't mean the film's any good. Mm. I think it's. I think it's. It's a. It's a very cliched phrase that the books are better. Well, I'll take your word for that. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I think it's. It's one of these things that all the best. Normally in film, all the best bits are in the trailer, unless it's a M Night Shyamalan film and they have to hide the twists from you and stuff like that. But in this one, the trailer's not even funny. That's a very bad indicator for a comedy. Yes. 
So. And it also has, the trailer has a great track in from, um, Snake and Jet's Amazing Bullet Band, which is one of my favourite kind of European artists and that kind of, right, I mean, you've already misused that song. I'm not <laughs> gonna like this film anymore if you keep using it. True. I know my name, we've got the kids are alright. No, I really wanted to see this and I'm probably gonna go and see this early next week because I'm a big Julianne Moore fan. It's, um, a comedy about, um, a lesbian couple played by Julianne Moore and Annette Benning, uh, with two children, and, uh, comedy goes awry when their biological father, played by Mark Ruffalo, turns up. Now, this is already getting awards buzz for both, uh, Moore and Benning, because Moore's been Oscar nominated four times before, and there's a lot of kind of talk in Hollywood of maybe this could be her year. Mm -hmm. Um, and like I say, it's, like I say, the original reviews indicate that it's going to be one of the year's best films. I'll see anything with Julianne Moore in, because I think she's very talented, and like I say, I will see this early next week. So if it's still in the top ten, I'll come on again next week and talk about it. Right, sounds like a plan. Um, at number eight, we've got Alpha and Omega. I haven't seen it. Looking at the trailer and the, the standard of the animation, it, it reminded me. Do you remember that film Valiant with Ricky Gervais and Hugh Laurie about the carrier pigeons? Yeah, that wasn't very good. No, that's the same kind of ropey, slightly innocuous animation. I mean, the only thing that Alpha and Omega is notable for, as far as I can tell, is that it's the last uh, recorded work of Dennis Hopper, who died earlier this year. Um, I mean, uh, my advice on that account would be go and rewatch Easy Rider and Blue Velvet on a double bill because they're both a lot better. I was gonna say it's a very, it's a, it's a shame that that's the bookend of his career. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I guess the argument is that he wasn't well enough to do a live action stuff because he was suffering from was it pancreatic cancer, something like that. Yes, um, I think there was also a few bats loose in the belfry, wasn't there? <laughs> Quite possibly, but we can't <laughs> go into we can't go into more detail without getting the lawyers involved. Uh, number seven, Legends of the Guardians. Yeah, I haven't seen this again, but this. This, the plot of this, I don't know if you're familiar with it, it sounds completely nuts. It talks about Nazi owls and, you know, Aryan stuff and so on. Yeah, it's, I think it's, as a, as a few people, a bit like Alpha Omega, they're in the top ten because Half Term was last week. Yeah, no, obviously, yeah. that's a very good point. I mean, the interesting thing for me is that this is directed by Zack Snyder, who made, you know, the remake of Dawn of the Dead, 300 and Watchmen, and has recently signed on to direct the new Superman film, which is being produced by Christopher Nolan. Oh, no. And I, I hadn't heard this that. Is a, that was exactly my reaction, because Christopher Nolan would think, right, with safe hands, and then he gives it to somebody who is visually very stylish but almost incapable of telling a story. Uh, and dear. Yeah. <laughs> the so. case of Superman rolls on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, if any, I mean, as long as it's better than Superman Returns, it'll be fine, because Superman Returns was a bit dreary. So I thought, that was, I thought it, was a, it was a good, solid film, but on, on a second watching, I couldn't, I couldn't believe I had noticed initially how annoying the character of Lois Lane was. Yeah. And it was like, oh, it's, and it was very soap opera, I was like, this is your son. It's like, Nah, I didn't get that bit at all. Yeah. Anyway, move switch on, uh, number six, Birkenhead. I'll hand this across to yourself. Yeah, um, I saw this last Sunday, and I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, I'm a big John Landis fan, though obviously American Wolf in London, Trading Places, Into the Night, which is very, very good. And it's been kind of kicked around town by the mainstream critics, and I can't understand why, because it's very funny. It's the classic Landis thing of taking something incredibly gruesome, whether it's werewolf transformation or in this case, you know, anatomy, and making it very funny. There's a really, uh, good cameo in it from, uh, Paul Whitehouse and from Michael Winner, who at one point goes over the, a cliff in a stagecoach in a kind of jokey in reference in-joke to the, uh, the car adverts that he made. Well, I just think that it's, uh, it's interesting that Landis has kind of, he, he kind of, kind of gained a reputation for being quite indulgent of just packing the screen with his friends and, oh, let's have a bit of gratuitous nudity and let's have a bit of swearing and so forth. And he can be a bit tiresome I mean, when you look at his late 80s work. But 
I thought it was really interesting that they kind of reined it in. They they built up the story with a kind of subplot involving Macbeth. I thought the central chemistry between Simon Pegg and Andy Serkis was really good. You should see it alone, though, for a, a great scene in the opening, and I'm, I'm going to try to tone this down because obviously it's a bit graphic, where a very portly Tim Curry is carrying out a vivisection on someone and suddenly kind of blood spurts into a guy's face and goes, that would be an artery. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole place just erupted <laughs> with laughter. Yeah, I think uh, Andy Serkis is a very underrated actor. Yeah. For the I know he gets tagged as, oh, it's, it's Gollum and it's King Kong lad, and he likes to put that suit on and get filmed with all the special cameras, but he can definitely hold his own. He Absolutely. Sh he should be in more stuff. I don't know if you saw, it was on TV, his portrayal of his Ian Brady. Uh, I didn't, know. I wanted to. That's, uh, he was just, he was a horrible, horrible character, so he did, did, did the job perfectly, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, we'll get back to the rest of the top ten, uh, in a minute. I'll just stick on a quick record here by The Saturdays, and we'll be back with you in about three minutes. It's Daniel's favourite band there, The Saturdays. <laughs> <laughs> you sprung that on me. <laughs> Yeah, he was just singing along all the way through that song. Um, anyway, a number, the rest of the top ten, uh, a number five, we have The Social Network. Oh, and it costs itself because you have seen this. It's really great. Uh, it's a real return to form for David Fincher. Obviously, the last film he made was The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which I wasn't all that keen on. Um, it's that, really... That was really weird. Uh, just to go off a bit of a tangent. It had, yeah, by it, all means. It had the element of reverse paedophilia in it. It was, yeah. it was a little bit... There is an Oedipal thing going on in it. Um, I just, I was I watching it going, how did this... The best quote I heard about it was, I mean, sorry to keep going on about him, but he is great. Mark Kermode, who just described it as Forrest Gump with A-levels. True. And, you know, it, it does have pretensions about its station. But The Social Network, the interesting thing is that he's managed to do what no Have you heard of Noah Baumbach, the director of The Squid and the Whale? Very self-important American independent filmmaker, married to Jennifer Jason Leigh. I've heard of the film, yeah, I can't say I'm the guys... Yeah, don't yeah. see this good in the world, it's rubbish. But he, <laughs> what David Fincher has done is he's managed to do what Noah Baumbach has been trying to do and failing to do for his whole career, which is take a bunch of horrible, chauvinist, unlikable people and make them compelling and interesting. I mean, the central argument of the social network is the world's biggest networking tool was invented by someone who is incapable of networking and may also be a tool. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's a very interesting film, not just about the, it, not just about the founding of Facebook, but how kind of cutthroat and savage capitalism is and how fast everything moves, but also about how the nation, nature of friendship has changed, you know, the way that we kind of, we Facebook each other and we're writing on each other's walls, but it's a kind of proxy and, you know, that has our real ability to have friends been eroded because of technology? Yeah, there's definitely the, the issue I'll have with Facebook, and still on it and still dabble in it and stuff, but where you see someone who you're friends with on Facebook, walk down the street, and you just blank each other because you think, I've got nothing to say to this person. Hmm. But on Facebook, you just go, Paul likes this on, <laughs> on their status and all that sort of nonsense. Yeah. So, yeah, I, uh, I thought, but is it true that they set up their Facebook because he did it as revenge against his ex-girlfriend? Yeah, that, yeah. So it has very... Sordid roots. We should point out, yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's based on a book, so it's not necessarily 100% uh, factually true, but I don't think that necessarily matters. According to the version of events in the film, he created a website called uh, FaceMash after breaking up with his girlfriend, um, I think her name was Erica Albright or something, not that it matters, where basically people would be presented with two uh, photos of women and they had to kind of say which one they liked the most, and it got so many hits that it crashed the Harvard servers. Um, yeah, I, d I think the film makes it very clear that, you know, the foundations of Facebook, like a lot of businesses, are, are quite reprehensible. And I think that, uh, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not the film is misogynist. I think it depicts misogyny in the sense of, you know, the way that, um, they, that women are treated in it. But it isn't in itself misogynist, and I think you should see it. How did, um, Justin Timberlake come across? Very well, actually. I, I mean... I saw him in Edison, 
the film with um, Kevin Spacey. I haven't seen that. That's, he came across really well in that, because he, he was kind of tarnished with the, the Shrek 3 brush. Yes, he, was, he wasn't very good in that. Oh, oh, Do you think he has potential? I think he is he's growing. I'm not completely convinced by him yet, but he is very good as Sean Parker in this, who, the guy who rented Napster, and he does very well. Right, uh, number four, we've got Red, which I will take. Yeah, I'll um, to you. Uh, basically, it's Bruce Willis, uh, who's a retired CIA agent, and it's all about his... He's just lonely, and he basically rips up his pension checks every month so he can ring the, the girl in the call centre at the CIA just to chat with her and flirt with her for a bit, because she, you can tell she's lonely as well. And then the CIA decide they want to take Bruce Willis and all the ex-people out, like John Malkovich, Helen Mirren, and Morgan Freeman, and... I went into it a bit sceptical, my mate picked it, he was like, we'll just go, it's Tuesday night, it's like three quid to get in, and I was like, eh, fair enough. It was brilliant. It literally, hilarious from start to finish, John Malvich absolutely steals the show. <laughs> I imagine, just, there's little things where he's, he's just a paranoid guy who used to, he was experimented on with LSD during, <laughs> uh, during his earlier years, so he's a bit, uh, he's a bit loose up, upstairs. And there's some really, as well, because of what you expect with the Bruce Willis film, there's some good action, and not just normal explosions, but there's a hand, like a one-on-one -on -one fight scene with him and Carl Urban, really, really brutal. It just totally it, not in keeping with the rest of the John film. John McClane taking on AM here. I've got to see yeah, that. Yeah, just it's just like the lane each other get up and it's like there's blood everywhere, bloodshot eyes. I always think bloodshot eyes is good adds to the effect. Mm. Um, and it's just you just think, whoa, where did that come from? Because then the next scene, Helen Mirren's pouring more afternoon tea. It's just <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> but it is it's, it's one that looks a bit weird. You think, do I want to watch an action film with other world people? That was my initial sort of. Well, that's what put me off the Expendables because yeah. I don't like Sylvester Stallone just running around looking for a paycheck. Yeah, but this this is this is one to see. If not, if not it should should just be around the cinema a bit longer. If it's number four, it's done quite well. So yeah, well, if I can't catch it in the next couple of weeks, I'll look out for it when it comes out on DVD. Stick it on the love film list. I will. <laughs> Uh, number three, Paranormal Activity 2. Um, I have a friend of mine who is a camera operator, uh, in a small company in Cheshire. I haven't seen it, but he went to see it last week and he thought it was one of the most boring films he had ever seen. I mean, the thing about the original Paranormal Activity, um, which again I didn't see in cinemas, but I've seen bits of it as a result of it being on television, is that it was a, it was essentially a very, you know, solid workmanlike, what's known as a found footage film, because it was all shot yeah. on camcorders. And I mean, and all the kind of inclinations of people who've who've seen it from you no know, people I know have seen it is that it's it's a bit sub Blair Witch. I mean Blair Witch in itself you can I mean this whole fan footage tradition goes back to a film called Cannibal Holocaust, which is about a documentary film crew and going into a, a South American jungle to find a nondescript cannibal tribe and the second half of the film is just the documentary footage that they shot, which is found by the rescue team. Yeah. And the thing about found footage sequels is that they are by and large really terrible. I mean, did you see the Blair Witch sequel, Book of Shadows? No, I was warned off it by all the yeah, horrific reviews. The, yeah, because the Blair Witch, originally, it's you no know, handheld, it's people going into the woods looking for the, uh, the Blair Witch and everybody dies. Not so spoiling it. But no, it's, it's 13 years ago, go and see it. But <laughs> Book of Shadows, they tried to do a kind of Pirandello thing of people visiting the site where the Blair Witch project was shot and there's only little bits on cameras and it basically sold out and, yeah, I don't... I don't see any reason to go and see this, to be perfectly honest. It's a weird one, uh, reading the plot, it's a prequel and a sequel in one. Yeah. With the events from the first Paranormal Activity sandwiched in the middle. Yeah. So it's a bit of a, it's, I suppose that's a fairly unique sort of thing. Well, yeah, I mean, you but, could, but that hints back to Evil Dead 2, surely, because that's, you know, there's a whole, you know, tome of debate about whether Evil Dead 2 is a sequel or a remake. So. Well, it was just a bit of a recap at the start, wasn't it? And it's just like, in case you weren't with us earlier, <laughs> this, this is what's happened. And then it goes... Nuts. Yes. <laughs> I think that's the safest way to describe it. And then uh, the army of darkness turns up and it all goes downhill. <laughs> yes. Um, 
So yeah, it's it's. I think maybe it's the gimmick is past. I don't. It, but the thing is, because it's made that cheap, uh, which kind of leads us. We will get to the number one film in terms of cheapness and yeah. profitability. Um, there probably will be Paranormal Activity three, won't there? Well, I don't know. I mean, it hasn't taken a huge amount of money in the state, um, but I don't know. Maybe if the sums add up, because you have to make two and a half times back the original budget, then I dare say there may be a third one. But it might even go direct to video. Right. Uh, number two, we've got Despicable Me. Now, I wanted to see this because I'm a big um, fan of Steve Carell and I liked uh, you know, the trailers which have got... I think Ricky Gervais might be faintly involved. I think he has a cameo in it or something and I'm, I like Julie Andrews. Um, the thing that's put, put me off kind of seeing it is the kind of... Apart from a couple of rather negative reviews saying it's just derivative of you know everything from Tim Burton to Watson Gromit, it's the kind of the Ice Age connection. Were you a fan of the Ice Age films? I like the first one because I think it does have a good sort of uh, family sort of theme at the end. You know, like where they're, they're there's, it's it's basically three idiots in there, but they're, 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 they're they do they do take the good moral high ground and they return the kid to the family and stuff like that. The rest of them, no. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, the first one, like I say, is okay, but they are completely innocuous and episodic. You know, mm -hmm. so you can watch them in any order and. Uh, because it's produced by the same guy, and I think I'm going to catch this on DVD, but I'm not. It's not pulling me in enough to go and see it in a multiplex. Yeah, it's not worth showing the nine to eleven pound for the the glasses as well for the uh, yeah. 3D glasses. I don't think it's going to be. As far as I can, as far as I've gathered from reviews, the 3D is quite pointless as well. Yeah, and at number one, Saw 3D. Here's the thing: the when the Saw series started, because um, the original Saw was made for next to no money at all, and it was kind of the Friday the Thirteenth of its day because it was a really kind of cheap, scuzzy, nasty movie that just happened to be playing in mainstream cinemas. And it's basically what happens is, is every time this, the series has made money, it's played out like the Friday the 13th sequel, so just the law of diminishing returns. And the only reason this is in cinemas is because it's in 3D. And they've deliberately said, you know, after the, the terrible um, box office of both Saw 6 and The Collector, that kind of stupid spin-off, that this is going to be the last one. And I say good riddance because I'm completely bored with these films. You say that, but... Uh, that's a, and another thing of uh, Dimension Returns would be the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Yeah. How long is it going to be before someone reboots Saw? In about five, ten years, maybe? Mm. Well, I wouldn't like to hedge my bets in case someone's listening, but, <laughs> um... I, th I think maybe ten years before we get no, a remake of as long as Zack Snyder's not doing it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just, um... I don't think you'll get Christopher Nolan reproducing one of those, though. I hope not. <laughs> if, if, he's do if he does that, that means that the next Batman is gonna be terrible and his career's taking a downward, <laughs> downward turn. But yeah, I think it's, um... I don't know, it, they've... I'm trying to think what I was gonna say there. Um, it's... I don't know, I saw... The first, I say, the first one started off a gruesome, and reading through the plots of the other ones and stuff like that, they're good ideas, very twisted and stuff like that. And the fact that it's released every Halloween, it's, it's you kind of see how it makes its money. In this. Yeah, I, I, mean, I still think there possibly is an audience for it because the film of the past week. Yeah, there's no doubt there's an audience for it because it's making money, but that doesn't mean the film has any kind of. I mean, it's it's even a bit insulting to use the words artistic merit, and that sounds quite ostentatious. But I mean, I think the thing is, it, it's 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 like. Um, the way that Slash has played out. You know, Halloween, which kind of kicked off the Slasher revolution, where there's very little gore. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the, the John Carpenter original, not the Rob Zombie reboot. And then all the kind of Slasher films that followed, it was basically, the reason they brought people in was killing people in inventive ways. So you get, you know, prom night and cheerleader camp and so forth, and eventually you end up with Lucia Fulci's The New York Ripper, in which you have someone stabbing call girls with a flick knife while doing duck impressions. I mean, it's just a case of we have to be more gimmicky and more goofy to bring people in, and that's exactly how the Saw series has played out. Yeah, it's, uh, but I, 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 
always, do you remember when they say it's the final one, like, because we had the final destination a few years ago? Yeah. And that keeps coming back like a bad smell, so I'd, I wouldn't be surprised if we're sat here next year with Saw 8. Well, let's not tempt fate, shall <laughs> we, and move on. Yeah, what we're going to do is we're take a quick break for, uh, stick another record on, and then, uh, we're going to, you're going to turn your attention to the bed-sitting room. Yeah, this week's cult film. Yes, so this is a bit of Alexandra Burke, and we'll be back with you in three and a half minutes. Alexandra Burke there with Don't Make Me Start Without You. Uh, now it's time to turn our attention to this week's cult film, and over to you, Daniel. Yeah, um, this is a kind of, we're planning on having this as a regular slot where we, um, talk about, um, cult films, that's films which kind of didn't have a proper mainstream audience at the time they were released, but have since kind of been embraced by a very select and devoted audience. And, uh, what better way to start than with, um, something I was seeing a couple of weeks ago called The Bed-Sitting Room. Were you familiar with this before we started talking about it? I didn't have a clue what it was. Right. So, I uh, probably, the, from the perspective of a lot of our listeners, just thinking, blank canvas, so... Right. Um, basically, it started out in life as a one-act play by, uh, Spike Milligan and John Antrobus. Spike Milligan, of course, one of the main writer of The Goon Show in the 1950s, and John Antrobus actually worked with him on a, on a couple of episodes at the end of the 50s. Uh, it ran in Canterbury in the early 60s, then a famed character actor called Bernard Miles, uh, who had founded the Mermaid Theatre, basically took it on board and asked Milligan to extend it out into a full-length play. That ran in the West End to big success. It got revived in 1967, and then Richard Lester, the filmmaker who would later go on to make uh, Superman 2 and Superman 3 uh, was kind of brought on board to turn it into a film version. Um, Richard Lester, of course, had previously worked with the Beatles on Help and A Hard Day's Night. and uh, you know, So he was kind of, he was a well-regarded kind of experimental filmmaker in the same way that Nicholas Rogue was to some extent. Um, the plot, I mean, it's very difficult to describe, but it's kind of an absurdist comedy by default. And I've used comedy by default for reasons that will become clear. It's set in post-apocalyptic London. At an unknown time after a nuclear misunderstanding between, um, I think it's America and Russia, which has caused the shortest war in history. There's a wonderful line in it saying the war lasted two minutes, 28 seconds, including the signing of the peace treaty. <laughs> and we follow a series of characters who are trying to survive in this world. So we have a family uh, led by Arthur Lowe, who of course, you know, Captain Mannering out of Dad's Army, who are living on the last running tube train on the Circle Line. There's two policemen played by Peter Cook and Dudley Moore who were shouting instructions from people from uh, a balloon which has got an old panda car attached to it which is you now floating around. There's Spike Milligan as the world's last postman who is travelling all over the place, you know, delivering parcels including one, a, new, a bomb in one scene. And then there's a really unusual um, scene of Harry Seacombe who also was in The Goon Show as a mad recluse who lives underground staring at old bits of stock film and ranting about Haig the Butcher as a reference <laughs> to Phil Marshall Haig and so forth. The central plot, however, follows uh, a character called Lord Fortnum, who's played by um, the great stage actor Sir Ralph Richardson, who uh, is slowly, w for whatever reason, you know, whether it's radiation or anything else, turning into a bed-sitting room. We know this is a you know, old term for a, a very small flat. And then you get other characters turning into inanimate objects, so uh, Arthur Lowe's wife at one point turns into a wardrobe, and Arthur Lowe himself gets turned into a parrot and then cooked later on in the film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're kind of laughing <laughs> awkwardly as if, like, what on earth is going on? And that's exactly the reaction you should have. It sounds, yeah, it sounds like the... The, pro the product of a, of a slightly dangerous mind, maybe. <laughs> That's quite a good way of putting, actually. I mean, were you a fan of um, things like the Q series, which you know, came out around the same time as Monty Python the, in the late sixties? Uh, can't say I. It's can't say I'm familiar with it. Yeah, because the Q series, it was Spike Milligan's kind of um, big attempt to break into television. Because he'd done the Goon Show for ten years, then he did the Telegoons, which was kind of the Goon Show with puppets in the early sixties, and it's actually quite good. And the thing about the Goon Show was that. 
because it was being filmed in front of a live audience and every episode had to be half an hour long, there was a kind of natural break. You know, they got to a point where the producer had to say, okay, Milligan, that's enough rambling into surrealism. Now we've got to cut you off because we've got to study this down. <laughs> but with the Q series, it's much more kind of inconsistent and rambling because there isn't that kind of break on right. him. So he, he can just kind of go off on all sorts of strange things and do four different jokes in the space of a second. And it's much the same with The Bed Sitting Room. I mean, it, it is one of the oddest films you'll ever see. It makes, you know, and even The Man Who Fell to Earth make, look, it makes even that look coherent and disciplined. And The Man Who Fell to Earth is completely all over the place. Um, the plot itself is actually inspired by a Goonshi episode called The Nadja Plague, where you have two of the main characters end up being turned into a gas stove and, a, and I think it's a, a grandfather clock. Um, but it's kind of much more in the tradition of, um, you know, Samuel Beckett's stuff, so Waiting for Godot, where you have characters who are standing around waiting for someone who never arrives and the g explanation they give is just, well, we're here because we're here. Yeah. And the, the thing is, although it's billed as a comedy, You'll, you'll have kind of three experiences. You will laugh at some points of it because there are little moments like, I mean, it is funny to see Peter Cook as a policeman who effectively becomes God in the final scene by, you know, descending from the clouds <laughs> and telling everyone that everything will be all right. And there's a wonderful um, supporting role by Marty Feldman, who we were talking about a second ago. He plays a cross-dressing mad nurse who at one point does a kind of Tarzan yell and, and sails down an invisible, a kind of, not an invisible zip wire, but an improvised zip wire and crashes into a tree. So there are individual moments where you'll laugh out loud but the thing about it is that Milligan's kind of wit just comes so quick at you. It's like joke after joke after joke. So that you kind of think, hang on, just let me laugh at one before you carry on and give me another two. True. Just like machine gun, yeah. Exactly. It is, it is a literal machine gun wit. Um, the other thing about it is that Lester is, for, with the best will in the world, and I'm quite fond of his early work, he's not the best director when it comes to narrative. I mean, if you look at his work with the Beatles, which are kind of, no, they don't really have an, a kind of story, the Beatles mm. films. And there's all these kind of strange characters running all over the place and the threads occasionally intertwine and it, the ending is quite contrived. That said, mm -hmm. the film is really interesting as a kind of document of, you know, the late 60s filmmaking. I mean, it, you couldn't make this film today, I mean, partly because it was very low budget, but also just the political circumstances with the Cold War and, you know, the, the kind of economic fortunes of Britain and the decline of empire and so forth. I mean, it's, that's all bound up in it. Uh, but also there's just this incredible, although it's a comedy, there is an incredible sense of pathos at the heart of it, that you have these characters who are kind of inhabiting the remnants of the great institutions of Britain, whether it's, because they, there's a joke at the beginning where the world's entire electricity supply is being generated by one guy on a bicycle, and he falls asleep, and so the whole world kind of grinds to a halt, and then the police kind of wake him up and say, come on, you're peddling for Britain. <laughs> And so there is that, but there's this just sense of people attempting to carry on as if nothing's happened and no one ever talks about the bomb. And it's just, so there, you kind of laugh awkwardly, but there is also this kind of real sense of, God, I really feel for these people, and that's actually yeah. quite sad. I think uh, the bit which struck me from watching the trailer and, shall we say, parts of the film, where the whole film was available on certain video online yes. websites? Certain well-known online video websites have the film. I mean, it's, it was recently re-released by the, the British Film Institute, the BFI, on DVD, and you can, you can rent it very easily. Yeah. The, uh, the bit which struck me uh, was... The, the guy, uh, Frank, I've done here, I've, sorry, I've just let my Wikipedia notes, I'm not, I'm not, I'm <laughs> trying, trying to make out that I, I would know it. Uh, the guy plays, he's, he calls himself the BBC. And yes. basically some, he explains the, 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 sort of the backstory, the plot, and, uh, he has this sort of sh shirt and tie combination, uh, suit and tie, um, 
but it's cut off at the shoulders, so it's just enough that when he sits with his head in the television screen, it looks perfect. Yeah, because you have it. The have rest a, is all rags. Because <laughs> you have one man being the whole BBC, so just wandering from this imp from one improvised settlement to another and standing in front of a broken TV screen reading the last recorded bulletin. Yeah, there's a bit where, where he's he suddenly like, the, the guy has to get up and twist his nose to make it work. It's like, <laughs> it's just like even then he's just he's committed to the fact. And then there's the fact that um, even though there's only like a dozen people left alive, they've still got a monarchy. <laughs> they know that when the national anthem is played, they sing "God Save." Mrs. Ethel Shrook, who was something like the, the Queen's tea lady and is the <laughs> closest in line to the throne. <laughs> I mean, it's just oddball bits like that, and it doesn't completely mesh together, but if you're a Milligan fan, it, you should check it out, just because it's so completely insane. Right. So that's it. That's your recommendation this week. Yeah, yeah. that's this week's cult film. Have years. you picked up next week, or do you want some time to think? Uh, um, well, I've got a number. Should we do Flash Gordon next week? Right. Yes. Flash so, Gordon, the, you know, the, one of the greatest kind of camp classics of the 1980s. Yeah. Are featuring we, Brian Blessed in the leather toga. Are we taking a positive stance on it or are we going to- Oh yes. It, we're going to rip it apart. <laughs> oh, I like Brian Blessed. I'll be- I'll be kind. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. It's time for- it's time there for my weekly indulgent where I subject you to some Smiths or some Morrissey whether you like it or not but this is- let's be honest, they're a great band so it's- I don't know, it's better than what we have been playing. I know Daniel will be up upset because I've criticising his Saturdays, his beloved Saturdays there. You just be careful. <laughs> um, and then we're back, uh, we've got about 15, 10, 15 minutes left. We could run through some new releases, couldn't we? Yeah, I think so. We could stick out in before 11 o'clock. So this is The Smiths with a boy with a thorn in his side. That's your weekly slice of gold there from The Smiths. Uh, right, now- Much better. We've told you, um, what- we've talked about cult movies, talked about UK's top tens. We're going to tell you now until we've got about twelve minutes till uh, eleven o'clock. We're going to run through some new releases for this weekend. Yeah, we are. Um, do you want to start with "Let Me In"? Yes. Explain to them the backstory because there's a bit of a. It's yeah. It's it's a, um, it's a remake of uh, Thomas Alfredson's "Let the Right One In," which is a Swedish vampire film that came out. Uh, it was released in the UK last year, but it was actually made uh, in two thousand and eight. And I should point out that I haven't seen the original yet, although everyone's saying I should. It comes with high praise. Yeah, it does. The very highest praise. Um, it's directed by Matt Reeves, who was the guy behind Cloverfield, which was obviously produced by J.J. Abrams. Stars, uh, Cody Schmidt-McPhee, who's the young kid in The Road. Did you see The Road? I haven't seen that one, but it's on the, it's on the, the DVD rental list for the generic love film. Other, yeah. other, other services are available. Yeah, so he's in it, <laughs> and the, the girl in it is played by a Chloe Moretz, who was in Kick-Ass very recently. Yes, quite controversial role she played there. Yeah. Just because um, of one word. Well, obviously, we can't say that word on the radio at no, 10 to 11 in the morning. Um, but basically, it's the, it's the same kind of story, which is it's a young boy who is being bullied at school. He befriends uh, a girl who, no surprise, surprise, turns out to be a vampire, as happens quite a lot. Um, there was a, a great quote, I mean, I, I, sorry to keep citing Mark Kermode because, but, but he is a kind of expert on horror and I admire him very greatly. He said, Let the Right One In is a film about children that just happens to feature vampires. Let Me In is a film about vampires that just happens to feature children. And looking f at the original, at the, both the original trailer and the trailer for this remake, you can see, clearly see that there is a shift between, because the original, by the looks of things, because obviously I haven't seen it, but it, it is very much, looks very much like a focus on, um, loneliness and what it is to be young. I mean, it, just, you know, the experience of being a child. Whereas in the remakes trailer, you have lines, actual lines like, I need blood to live. <laughs> things. So you think, yeah, this is much more kind of outre, slightly gory. And there are, there is that kind of slightly hokey horror scene where the, a guy finds a little girl singing in the bottom of a dark, murky tunnel, which all horror fans know, don't go in up to her because it'll just be a horrible end. I think, I mean, if you look at the history of, um, American remakes of foreign language films, you mean, they don't have a very good record. I mean, um, have you seen the original version of The Vanishing, the Dutch horror film? 
I haven't, no. I've seen the... You've seen the American remake? Yeah. Yeah, because the original is one of the- has one of the scariest endings in- in cinema. I mean, I- I've seen it a couple of times and it just freaks me out. But the remake is completely terrible. And it's- it's- I mean, it essentially what- what often happens is that kind of- they'll take the central idea and just kind of turn it up to eleven, put in more action spectacle and so forth, and it doesn't really work. All the kind of positive reviews have let me in have basically said, well, it's actually very close to the original. And so that maybe is a reason for seeing it. But in that case, just watch the original. Yeah. If, if there's one which is very recent, I know that there's a thing in America where they, they won't, they won't read a film because it's got subtitles. Um, <sighs> there's a very, it's, uh, there's a bit of negativity towards that. It's like, but if, if something exists which is fine, it's just stay with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it was necessary to have a remake, but you know, if you if you have to see it, if you have to see a remake this year, this is probably the one to see. Right. Uh, the next film is Another Year, right. a new film by Mike Lee, uh, who is one of Britain's greatest living directors. Made Vera Drake, Secrets and Lies. Started out on TV with things like Abigail's Party, and uh, made my personal favourite, which is Topsy Turvy. Have you seen that? I haven't. No. Very interesting. Very funny film about. Uh, you know, a completely unlikely subject matter about the relationship of Gilbert and Sullivan around the writing of the Mikado. It's got Jim Broadbent in. And it's the only film in which you will see Timothy Spall wearing a dress, hopping from foot to foot while wearing a massive feeler on his head. <laughs> it's worth seeing for just those seconds alone, because he's playing the Mikado, and it's a really interesting film. Um, it follows a year in the life of a late middle-aged couple, uh, called Tom and Jerry, spelt with a G, before anyone starts cracking that joke, played by Jim Broadbent and Ruth Sheen. It looks at four, um, Sunday afternoons at very various points in that year when they're visited by uh, friends and family and because it's Mike Leeds, you know, there's various, various troubles, various kind of complicated intertwining relationships. Um, this was nominated for the Palme d'Or in Cannes back in May and it rec it's received universal acclaim. If you go on Rotten Tomatoes, it's got a 100% rating, which means that everybody loves it. Um, I mean, I had a problem with Mike Lee's last film, Happy Go Lucky, with Sally Hawkins, which was basically about this character who was just happy all the time and being a completely feel good. And I just thought, shut up, shut up, you're really annoying me. I want you to get a grip now. But. Yeah, well, you sort <laughs> of sympathise with the driving instructor, you think? Yes, you do. In raw, in Great performance by Eddie Marsden. But it's, it does look like that wonderful thing that Mike Lee does so well, which is he is a master of the bittersweet. I mean, he knows how to do comedy very well, but because of the way that his films are kind of scripted by months and months of improvisation and rehearsal, every single line, every single mannerism feels absolutely genuine. You, there's never a point in the Mike Lee film when you go, well, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. It's no, no one explains the plot to someone. Yeah, exactly. There is already Oscar talk for Leslie Manville, who is in a supporting role in it. I think she she plays a 50-year-old friend of the couple who is kind of um, struggling to come to terms with the fact that she's getting older, and all the reviews I've heard so far have kind of praised her performance. But I just think Mike Lee is one of Britain's best directors. He's a real gem. Go and see Topsy Turvy first, then go and see this, because it's a really good film. There is a um, Mike Lee season on film four this week. So that's true, actually. You yeah. could possibly catch up this weekend. Yeah, I think, um, because Happy Go Lucky is definitely showing, um, I think Secrets and Lies and Naked are both showing. I'm not sure about All or Nothing or his other work, mm -hmm. but by all means catch it. Right, uh, five minutes. Can we sneak another two? Yeah, let's, let's do Jude Date and Jackass together for, I mean, Jackass, which is the latest instalment of Prameful pranks, borderline sadomasochism from Johnny Knoxville and his crew. I believe you didn't give it its full title. At Jackass 3D. Yes. Um, I mean, it, the first two Jackass, I mean, I wasn't a fan of the Jackass series and I haven't seen the first two films, I'll say up front, but basically, 
the clips of the first two films that I've seen are completely episodic, you know, it's just one stunt after another, there's no kind of- It's just the, 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 have you ever seen the, the 20 minute, uh, TV show? Yeah, I've seen a couple of episodes. It's just that, but for the name, it's just no, it's no, there's like maybe some re recurring stunts all the way through, but nothing, nothing, it's nothing, just, nothing yeah. to give it like a narrative. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, re the only reason it's, it's in 3D is because it's a gimmick. I mean, it, and I, I haven't seen anything from the trailer that will show them that they're using 3D properly, so I just, you know, completely pointless. It's basically, it'll be, yeah, 3D guys <laughs> getting hit in the nuts. Yeah, if that's, <laughs> what, if that's what you want, no, but some of us are, you know, a little bit more intelligent than that. Um, so, and then there's Due Date, which is the latest comedy, in inverted commas, from the director of The Hangover. Um, Starring the one of the people from the Han Hangover. So, yeah, how do you Play pronounce his name? Zach Galifianakis. Playing exactly the same character. Yeah, it's bearded, <laughs> and at one point he is seen carrying a baby. I yeah, think. it's like <laughs> let's just uh, that lad is he's, he's kind of going down the Michael Cera route of being stereotypecast. Uh, oh yeah, I mean I, I'm quite fond of Michael Cera because he's great in Scott Pilgrim. But can he do that role as weedy geeky man when he's forty? Mm, only time will tell. Because yeah. how old is he now? He's still under 30, isn't he? So yeah. Anyway, we're slightly sidetracked. Um, the thing that kind of strikes me is because I wasn't a big fan of The Hangover at all, and there's already a sequel to The Hangover coming out next year. So there's already a reason not to spend your money now. But also, what is Robert Downey Jr. doing in this film? Because Robert Downey Jr., who used to be incredibly annoying, and in the past few years with the Iron Man franchise and Tropic Thunder and, you know, the soloist sort of, he's kind of got back on form. Kiss Kiss uh, Bang Bang is a really good film. Yeah, I mean, obviously I think he, one of his best performances is still in Chaplin. I mean, he's the, he's the best thing about that Richard Attenborough film, just because he absolutely inhabits Charlie Chaplin's character, right down to the way that he looks. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a kind of road trip movie about an uptight businessman and an aspiring actor who, you know, he's got to get, the, the uptight businessman has got to get to the birth of his, uh, his child, we don't know whether it's a son or daughter, and, you know, hilarity ensues, and the trailer makes it look as if it's completely out of control, and the film only exists because The Hangover made money, so either just save your money and wait for the sequel, or just don't go and see either and watch Mike Lee's film instead. I think as well with the, um, the trailer, it's one of these trailers which, it's like a two and a half minute long trailer, I remember saw one, went to see the film Red. Mm -hmm. you, you see exactly what happens. You see, oh, their car crashes, blah, but a bit later they're off seen a car with, uh, Jamie Foxx. And it's like, it just, taking all them elements out there, I know that the, the whole point is they've got to put the funny stuff in the trailer, but there's a risk with the comedy that you put all the funny stuff in the trailer. Exactly. I know that once you're in there and you've parted with the money, they don't care because you, they've got your money anyway. Mm. They could subject you to 90 minutes of nothing. And as long as it, like that first, the, all the fun jokes could be in the first three minutes. They've got your money. They don't care. Um, obviously, the word of mouth thing would cripple a film in the in the forthcoming weeks. Yeah, but then again, you get people being pet. You get studios paying people to write good reviews nowadays. I mean, that's what happened with the Revolver. There was this big quote on the poster Revolver saying one of the best films of the year, and then small print the Sun, and it turned out they invented a fictional journalist to get a good review because the film was so dreadful. Yes, I did make the mistake of watching that a few years ago. Oh it's, no! It's, uh, Why? Why would you want to? I don't know, <laughs> I'm rightly wrong, you're kind of a fan of, um, Guy Ritchie's work. Mm, yeah. Lock stock, there were things in it. And Snatch, and, um, I did enjoy Sherlock Holmes. But I haven't I seen that, although I have heard it's pretty um, good. Um, so I thought, oh, why not? I'll stick it on, I'll give it a go. Oh, oh terrible. Yeah. It's just like, I know Jason Statham comes out with some rubbish, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jason Statham's very likable in a kind of trashy B-movie sort of way, but, you know, just... Sherlock Holmes notwithstanding, because I haven't seen it, Guy Ritchie's a terrible director. <laughs> Yes, there's a film with Madonna. Was it swept, swept away? Swept away. Blimey. Terrible. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, I, not, I can't even tell you the plot of that film because it's so horrific. Yeah. So should we give it a summing up because we've got two minutes till the news? Uh, yes, we have exactly one minute starting now. Right, so, so um, Film of the week? 
another year. Um, great Mike Lee film. Also, Rent, the bed sitting room in DVD. You can get it via Blockbuster and Love Film and anything else. Get the BFI special edition of it with interviews with Peter Cook and Richard Lester, which are very good. Um, of the stuff still in the top ten, I'd say go and see Burke and Hare in the social network if you haven't already. Uh, and of course the kids are alright, which I will try and see by next week. Yes, and if we could, uh, start a backlash against Saw 3D and urge you all not to go. Yes. Can we start a, a movement here? I think we shall. Yeah. It's, it's uh, the anti-Saw 3D movement. Anyone who goes to see Saw 3D shall be struck down. We're not going to insult the listeners. <laughs> this is the first week we've done this. We're going to have nobody listening next week. No, I think we, we start, we go, we go straight to the, we go, instead of going not to six, we just go straight in revolution. <laughs> That's the way Well, I look forward to being a part of it. Yes, uh, so, uh, we've got about a few cents left, and then Daniel will be back next week. Yeah, hopefully. Yep, and we're going to be talking about Flash Gordon next week. We'll stick on to the news, and then it's time for a guest of the year. Thank you.